Good evening and welcome to Calvary Chapel. We are rapidly approaching the completion of our series of studies in the book of Job, which is kind of exciting. I will say that my favorite parts of the book of Job are the first two chapters and chapter 38 through the end of the book. Uh, The rest of the book is beautiful, and it's beautiful poetry, uh, but it is a lot of reading. This is still a little bit of reading, but this is the speeches of God, which begins in chapter 38 and brings us right to chapter 40, verse 5. Uh, We'll be looking at that this evening. And then there's the second speech, actually, of God, which picks up in chapter 40, verse 6, to chapter 42, verse 6. So uh, we're going to be looking at the first speech of the two speeches of God, which is part three of the book of Job. Now, in this first speech, God declares his own omnipotence, that is, that he's all-powerful through creation. So this is a glorious praise of God, but the words are from God, because anything that is said that is true about God, whether it's God saying it, or us saying it, or the angels saying it, or the heavenly host, is praise. Everything you could say about God that's true is, 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 is praise. So understand, there's a lot of praise in here for God's creation and God's creative ability and uh, supernatural creative ability. Uh, but uh, the other thing that you need to remember is that this is the moment when God speaks in response to Job. Somewhat in response to Job's three friends and Elihu, but mostly in response to Job. So I will remind you, if you don't remember, that Job did a lot of complaining because he was suffering unjustly. We know that. He didn't do anything to deserve that suffering. His friends didn't agree, but he knew in his heart he was a man of integrity, and yet God had allowed him, even ordained, that he should suffer. So because of that, Job had a tendency through this book to express how he felt and how he felt it was unfair. And while he never cursed God, he never took issue with God's nature and God's character, but he did take issue with his circumstances. And so now God responds, and a lot of what God does here is simply humbles Job. Uh, I will remind you again, and I've said it many times, God doesn't really need to answer our questions. He sometimes does. But God here is not interested in so much answering Job's question, or many questions, but that he's trying to let Job know he's not God. And I think that's probably the most important lesson in this book, that when we suffer or we're going through things and we don't understand what God is doing, it's important to remember you're not God, so you're not always going to understand what God is up to or what he's doing. So as we pick it up in chapter 38, in verse 1, we're going to see the Lord is going to now respond to Job. With that, let's open in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and this precious book in your word, a challenging book to study and to read and to meditate on. But this evening now, as we open up your word, we know that there are answers as to you and your nature and and, and who you are and Maybe not why, but who. Maybe not all of the answers to all of Job's questions or our questions or anyone's questions, but the truth of who you are, which really should be enough. For we know who you are, that you're mighty, that you're great and awesome. 
but that you're also gracious and long-suffering and merciful and compassionate. Oh, Lord God, help us to see this in your word this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll start by looking just at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 38. And we read here that the Lord answered Job out of the storm. You remember that storm was gathering at the end of the last chapter. Uh, That storm was gathering. Elihu was in the middle of his speech. And all of a sudden, God now answers Job out of the storm. And he said, who is this? And remember, he's speaking to Job. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Remember, Job was interested in questioning God and receiving answers from God, but now God has turned that around on him. Here the Lord challenges Job to answer several questions. And by the way, Job can't answer even one of these questions. So it's just, it's designed to place him in a, in a place of humility before God. That's what this is really all about. Now, Job and his friends had spoken at length regarding things far beyond their understanding and their debate. They had often questioned God. Now God would question them. And now the Lord, and you have to see there's a degree of sarcasm here, the Lord sarcastically questions Job first about the earth. About the earth. So let's look at verses 4 through 7. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Where were you, Job, when I created the earth? That's the idea. He makes it clear that the earth was created way before Job. And yet Job had questions. God created the earth in its perfect dimensions. When you look at the earth you realize that if it was just a little closer to the sun, life couldn't exist. If it was a little further away from the sun, life couldn't exist. If there were certain things about the earth, its rotation or its orbit were slightly off, uh, life wouldn't exist here. This planet is perfectly designed by God to sustain life, human life. Now, I, I, I know that there's lots of people in this world that are trying to find life elsewhere. I think the motivation for some of that is because they look at this world and they just can't believe that God created the heavens and the earth and placed mankind and all of the creation on this planet for his specific purpose. So if they could find some alien somewhere, they would begin to question the entire biblical narrative. It's amazing, with all the money and effort and science placed in trying to discover life on other planets, not even a microbe, really, has been found. Not even a microbe. So think about that. NASA will always, in the fall, when they need to ask Congress for more funding, they'll always publish some article, and the article will be something like, the possibility of life was found on Mars. And so you think, okay, well, let me look into this a little bit further. Then they find some evidence that water could have existed, and if water existed, which, by the way, is not life, then life could have existed. There's always this sort of bait-and-switch thing when you read the article, you find that, you know, they haven't even found a microbe. So whatever they tell you, it's, it's about funding, it's about keeping people's attention. They're so bent on going to another planet like Mars. And uh, I have to be honest with you, I don't even like going in the city. So I can tell you right now, when they're signing up people to go to Mars, it's not going to be me. 
This planet was designed for us, and I like it just fine. And if you notice, you can't live at a very high altitude for very long. You can't live at the depths of the sea for very long, unless you're in some type of special bathysphere, I think they call it, unless you're in some kind of a special machine. Uh, And unless you have oxygen, you can't even handle the high altitude. So it's amazing how we are just where we need to be to survive. I do not believe that that is chance. I do not believe that that is just some random occurrence. I believe the biblical narrative, which suggests that God created the heavens and the earth and created man on the earth with a specific purpose that he might have a relationship with him. So that much is true. But God created it just the way it is, perfectly. Now, granted, there's sin in the world, so things don't always go perfectly. But when you consider our environment, uh, we can appreciate after last week going outside and just breathing in the air, right? You can't breathe in the air on Mars. Your lungs would be scorched. Uh, There is some atmosphere, but if you tried to breathe it, you you couldn't. You you wouldn't. You would die. So just think about that. And so God says, you know, where were you? Do do you know how I did this? He also created the laws of gravity that control the movement of the earth. He talks about the earth in terms of like a building, because that's the language that Job would understand. It's cornerstone, it's footings. But what you're really saying is, why is it that the earth is sort of suspended in space? Well, that's gravity. God created gravity, and the laws of gravity uh, are his doing. So the earth and all of the celestial bodies don't just crash into one another. They have a relationship that he established through astrophysics. We can observe them, but we really can't explain them. And, uh, of course, he created the angelic beings as well, which are mentioned here as the morning stars that sang together and all the angels that shouted for joy. The morning star... The morning stars. The morning stars are a term or stars that are used in the scripture over and over again as an analogy to angels. For whatever reason, that's how the Bible speaks of angels or heavenly messengers. I want to point out little, one little piece of trivia. That this tells us that when God created the heavens and the earth, the angels sang. And we often will say when someone sings very well, oh, you have the voice of an angel, you know. But the truth is, After sin came into the world, there's no evidence that the angels have ever sung. I know you're thinking, well, what about the heavenly host that announced the birth of Christ? Well, it doesn't say that they sang. So they declare the message, and and, and the heavenly host has not sung on the earth, I believe, since creation. Now, we see in the book of Revelation in the last days, there's singing in heaven, there's, there's singing... And there's praise. That's in heaven, number one. Number two, a lot of that happens even later on after Christ creates a heaven and a new earth, uh, a new heaven and a new earth. So just understand, when we think of angels singing, that's actually not something we've ever really experienced, not since the fall of mankind. But we here learn that they shouted for joy at the time of creation and they sang together. He also tells Job, the Lord tells Job that he created the sea. And the land, not just the earth, but the sea and the land on it. When he speaks in verse 8, Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, again, using uh, engineering or architectural terms that we would understand, when I said, This far you may come and no farther, 
Here is where your proud waves halt. So he decides where the sea begins and where the land ends. And that we, we see in question today. There's so much and have been for even decades now. Talk about how the seas are going to overwhelm the land. And we have to get involved and do what we can to prevent climate change so that, you know, we're, here we are in, in uh, Passaic County. We won't have beachfront property, you know. So that's the idea that somehow the ocean's going to come in. L- listen, God controls that. Mankind, in his audacity and his pride, thinks that by releasing some emissions, he can somehow control the earth or change the climate. It's not that easy to change the climate. I'm not saying that some of these things don't affect the climate, but don't put those things above God's being in control of the climate. And by the way, if we had all the statistical data for the last thousand or two thousand years, I'm sure there have been periods of heating and cooling on the earth. Of course, there have been. There's evidence of that as well, so geologically. So this idea that somehow mankind can affect change in our climate, we need to spend a whole lot of money in order to stop it from happening, is not only proud, but it's foolish. Because honestly, what do you think they're doing with that money? Has anyone ever stopped to ask, okay, here's a couple trillion dollars, what are you actually doing to stop climate change. Does it take trillions of dollars to take away gas stoves, which allegedly cause problems, or create electric vehicles, which allegedly are going to solve the problem? No, it's just, it's, it's once again like mask mandates. It's this idea of, of fooling people into thinking they need to spend money. But I've, I've learned something over the last few years. People are stupid. They're very foolish. Okay. <clears throat> but God created the sea and the land. And he makes that clear, and he controls it as well. Look at verse 12. He created the earth's features and maintained sovereignty over it. Look at verse 12. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown it the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Very interesting uh, picture, right? Like a seal or a stamp being pressed down. It, its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light, and their upraised arm is broken. Again, speaking of those that defy God. So the idea here is that God created the day and the night through the earth's rotation. He created the earth's features, the mountains, the valleys. He maintained sovereignty over it. I am much more comfortable trusting God with our climate and our environment than spending money to try to promote some idea that we can control our environment or our climate, which obviously we cannot. So the wicked seem to be repelled by the light of morning in this, in this description that God says. The light sort of repels them. Uh, but God created the earth's geological and topographical features. The way the earth is, is the way God created it. And the wicked are dealt with in God's time by his command. That's what it says there. The wicked are denied their light and the upraised arm is broken. So they will be destroyed in God's good time, as we have seen in our studies on Sunday mornings in the book of Revelation. He also created the earth's geological core. Now look, the Bible is not a science textbook. It's non-scientific. It's not trying to be scientific, but it describes scientific truths. So the science that we are aware of isn't in conflict with the Bible, but the Bible's not trying to speak 
to scientists or with scientific knowledge or, or descriptions. It's simply communicating the truth as it is in a way that mankind can receive. So look at verses 16 through 18. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. And Job is being put in his place. God created the subterranean water supply. There is a subterranean water supply under the crust of the earth, in the crust of the earth, that comes up through the oceans. And there's some parts of the oceans that are so deep we've never even been there. And there's subterranean water, and God is in control of that. He asks, you know, have, were you there? Do you know anything about it? Have you gone there? Of course not. Even to this day, we haven't been able to see all of that. And <clears throat> he also created Sheol, or Hades, thought to be at the earth's center. Classically speaking, for whatever reason, mankind understands the place of the dead as being at the center of the earth, or being at the core, the earth's core. Now, more than likely, that's just a classical description, but that is something that is quite common in all cultures, this idea that the place of dead souls or spirits uh, is at the center of the earth. I think it's more likely it's interdimensional, but regardless, that, that, that common way of thinking, it permeates all cultures. And here, the Lord is talking about the center of the earth. He's talking about the earth, its core. And he brings up Sheol. So that's part of the reason why. But here you have a description of the place of the dead. And he asks him, have you seen it? Have you been there? And of course, Job has not. None of us have. The study of earth alone is beyond man's ability to comprehend. We don't know everything about our own planet, let alone the planets and the stars in the solar system. We know very little, actually. When all is said and done, we don't understand a lot. That's the point. If you're humble before God, you'll realize that. Science proudly professes that God doesn't exist, and yet they can't answer any of these questions either. Job can't. They can't. And that should put them in their place, but sadly it doesn't. But it's the fool who says in his heart that there is no God. That we do know. <clears throat> That's what the word tells us. Okay, well now we get to the Lord, again, sort of sarcastically questioning Job about the heavens. We've talked about the earth, and I think Job would come up blank with any answers. Now the, the heavens, and so we read in verses 19 through 21 <clears throat> in uh, chapter 38. What is the way to the abode of light? This is very interesting because they're all very, science, very much scientific mysteries that we study even today. But what is the way to the abode of light? That is, where does light come from? Good question, right? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. So don't tell me that sarcasm isn't okay because God used it. <laughs> it has its point. It has its moments. And scripture, scripture has many instances where prophets are also sarcastic. There were moments where even Jesus spoke in ways that could be described as somewhat sarcastic. He was never unloving, but 
you know, the speeches sometimes have their, their points, their barbs to make a point. And, and I think that that doesn't mean it's sin. It's just sometimes sarcasm just gets the job done. So as I look at that, I realize the Lord created the light in the midst of the dark void of space. And he created the atmosphere and its seasons in the weather as well as we see in verses 22 through 30. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed? Or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water the land, a land where no man lives, a desert with no one in it, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice, and who gives birth to the frost from the heavens, when the waters become hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen? So now he's, he's speaking about the heavens, but he's also speaking about the atmosphere, the seasons, the weather, the things that control our planet, things that, again, are well outside our ability to understand or control. He also created the celestial heavens, which would be outside of our atmosphere with its constellations, And so we see in verses 31 through 33. Now, the references here are to certain constellations, and I'll talk about them in a minute, but he says, Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? This is pretty fascinating because astronomy is something that is existed for a long time. It was at one point thought of in terms of astrology because it was more mystical. But now it's a science. It's, it's something that people really study quite a bit. Uh, but it's something that has been studied by ancient cultures forever. And the constellations themselves are ancient. You will find the signs of the zodiac in all of the ancient cultures. And uh, so it certainly predates some of these cultures because these constellations, the 12 constellations, major constellations, and other constellations come up over and over again throughout the, the cultures of, of history. So what we're learning here is the constellations of the zodiac, which are familiar to most of us today, aren't bad. I think we get this understanding as Christians that because astrology uses these things, that somehow they're bad. Uh, they're not bad. The Maseroth is a Hebrew word which describes the constellations. But the Pleiades is interesting. It's called the Seven Sisters, and it's a winter constellation, often mistaken for the Little Dipper. If you look at it, uh, it's a cluster of stars located within the shoulder of the constellation Taurus. Uh, astronomers believe that this constellation may be the gravitational center of our galaxy. So just a thought. Interesting when you read this, can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you, can you control it? Can you, can you um, bind it? Can you, can, you, can you create that force that comes from that place? So obviously God is, is sharing knowledge that we would have what, no way of knowing, uh, but it's consistent with some of what we've been able to observe since. That shouldn't surprise you. The word of God is true, amen? It is a cluster of stars, like I said, and, and it's where we believe, quite possibly, the gravitational center of our galaxy exists. Orion. Orion is another very easily recognized constellation. 
Uh, it's believed to represent, represent Nimrod the Great in storytelling, which goes well back to before the Tower of Babel. Uh, there's also the bear. This could be Leo, the constellation Leo, but it's probably the bear, Ursa Major, which revolves around the North Pole and never sets in our hemisphere. So you'll always be able to see the constellation uh, Ursa Major. Uh, now, the study of astronomy is an ancient science, still fascinates us today. Astrophysics is a study of the laws that govern the celestial heavens, but we still don't understand how or why they exist. Einstein spent a lot of time and a lot of energy, as have many other very, very intelligent people, trying to reconcile the four major forces in you know, th- this, this understanding of reconciling these forces in an elegant way. Uh, we have gravity, electromagnetism, and strong and weak nuclear forces. It just shows God's dominion. God is in control. Now, Einstein had a theory of relativity. He had an understanding that you could somehow mathematically reconcile these forces, that at one point they were one force, uh, but now they have become four. But in either case, it just goes to show you that God doesn't need us to explain his creation to him. He certainly understands it. He created it. He also created weather patterns and the climactic changes necessary for agriculture. Look at verse 34. Can you raise the voice or raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you? Here we are. Who endowed the heart with wisdom or gave understanding to the mind? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together. So we're talking about weather patterns, and he controls the weather. But he also says there that he places wisdom in the heart and knowledge in the mind of man. Now that's very important to understand. There are people with great wisdom and people with great knowledge, but we're told there that it's God that does that, that he places wisdom and knowledge in the hearts and the minds of men and women. So God is saying quite a bit here to Job, And as you can see, Job isn't saying anything. (laughs) Um, And he he will continue to be quiet because what would be the point, right? So in verse 39, uh, we now pick it up here. And the Lord is questioning Job now about the animal kingdom. So we've talked about the earth. We've talked about the heavens, the celestial heavens, the atmosphere, all the things that God understands and understands perfectly, but certainly created perfectly. So now we're going to talk about the animal kingdom. So if you think that, let's say, biologists or zoologists are exempt, you know, there's all these different scientists that are being spoken to in this portion of God's word, uh, and yet God reigns supreme. And so let's see what he has to say about the animal kingdom. Uh, In verse 39, do you hunt the prey for the lioness? And satisfy the hunger of of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in the thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Now, this is interesting because you're seeing there's an ecosystem that God has set in place. We're aware of it. We observe it. Uh, If you've ever watched a nature program, uh, Animal Planet, or when I was a kid, it was Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. And I think it was Sunday evenings, I can't remember, but I think it was Sunday evenings, and we would all sit down and we would watch these shows about nature, and it was fascinating. And you always left, it always left you with a sense of awe and wonder for the creative ability of God. Uh, and that's just fascinating to me. But we're learning here that 
He created carnivorous animals and their natural instincts. He created the ecosystem. And by the way, the ecosystem is this. Death brings life. Life ends in death and death brings life. And that sustains the lion for the lion attacks the gazelle, right? And eats the gazelle. And what he doesn't eat, the raven and other carrion come in and, and jackals and other, other uh, animals that, that live on dead things and eat dead things. They come in and then they eat what's, what's left. And that's the cycle of life. Not to sound like uh, the Lion King there for a minute, but, but basically the cycle of life. You've got this, the circle of life. You've got this understanding that, you know, death brings life and life brings death. And that's how God created things. And when he speaks about the raven, it's interesting. This, this is a, an animal worth studying in the Bible because... The Hebrew is, and the Arabic are, are words from the roots to mean black, obviously, because a raven is black. But the Arabic has the idea of leaving home. And so it became this understanding that when you saw a raven, it was an evil omen. And that's a superstition. But of course, Edgar Allan Poe capitalized on that understanding of what the raven represents in his writings. Basically, ravens are the first birds specifically mentioned in the Bible, back in Genesis chapter 8, verse 7. They are forbidden as food under the Mosaic law because of what they eat. And uh, they feed on carrion. They, they feed on dead things. They're like crows and vultures, other animals that eat dead things. In my neighborhood, if a deer gets uh, hit by a car, you'll see the carcass and... Uh, you know, we do actually have some small predators like foxes and, and uh, some, some would say coyotes in our neighborhood. I'm not so sure about that. But I you know we have these animals, and they'll eat just so much, right? And then the carcass is picked clean by these carrion. And that's, it's kind of a good thing because otherwise there would be a lot of dead carcasses in my neighborhood, you know? So back to the raven for a minute. God is providing food for them through the ecosystem he designed. If nothing died, these animals wouldn't live. So this is the cycle of life post-flood, but this is the cycle of life that God created. And God is saying, do you understand it? Can you explain it to me, Job? <laughs> you know, they attack weak animals as well. They have a purpose in the ecosystem. And by the way, if an animal's very weak and, and the birds are very hungry, they'll peck out the eyes or you know, they'll, they'll peck out the eyes of the animal. It's actually talked about in Proverbs chapter 30. Uh, but, and then, of course, the animal doesn't live much longer than that, and they get to eat that much sooner. But they have to wait till it dies to eat it. They don't eat living things. They eat dead things. Uh, Jesus actually used the raven to illustrate the lesson of God's provision. Uh, consider the raven, you know, in Luke's gospel. And the Greek word is from the root, which means to be satisfied with food. Now, the reason a raven can be satisfied with food is there is so much death in this world. Sin brought death into the world. And so carrion and ravens and vultures have plenty to eat because death came into the world through sin. But anyway, it's interesting to study the raven because the raven, as an animal, comes up quite a bit in God's word. He also created the mountain goat and the deer and designed their gestation periods, or the amount of time it takes for them to give birth. Look at verses 1 through 4 in chapter 39. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? 
Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. <clears throat> their labor pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow strong in the wilds, and they leave and do not return. Fascinating, and that's the way God designed them. He also created the wild donkey and designed him to live free in his harsh environment. Verses 5 through 8. Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied his ropes? I gave him the wasteland as his home, the salt flats as his habitat. He laughs at the commotion in the town, and he does not hear a driver's shout. That is, he's not forced to work. That's the idea. He ranges the hills for his pasture and searches for any green thing. Then he also mentions the wild ox, that he designed him strong, independent, and untamable. And this is all just a humble Job. Verses 9 through 12. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will he stay by your manger at night? Can you hold him in the furrow with a harness? Will he till the valleys behind you? Will you rely on him for his great strength? Will you leave your heavy work to him? Can you trust him to bring in your grain and gather it in your threshing floor or to your threshing floor? No, there are wild animals, and God created them to be wild. He also now mentions the ostrich, which is a flightless and foolish bird, yet extremely fast. In verse 13, the wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, but they cannot compare with the pinions and feathers of the stork. That is, they can't fly. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly, as if, it were, as if they were not hers, she cares not that her labor was in vain. For God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Yet, when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. So you see, they're fast. So God is basically going through the animal kingdom and saying, look, I created this animal in this way and this animal in that way, and you don't understand or can explain any of it. And it's very humbling. Now he mentions the horse, which God designed to be strong, powerful, and fearless in battle. Verse 19, did you, do you give the horse its strength or clothe its neck with a flowing mane? Do you make him leap like a locust, striking terror with his proud snorting? He paws fiercely, rejoicing in his strength and charges into the fray. He laughs at fear, afraid of nothing. He does not shy away from the sword. The quiver rattles against his side, along with the flashing spear and lance. In frenzied excitement, he eats up the ground. He cannot stand still when the trumpet sounds. At the blast of the trumpet, he snorts, aha. He catches the scent of battle from afar, the shout of commanders, and the battle cry. It's interesting because in the time of Job, clearly in that area of the world, there there were equestrians. There, There were those taming horses and using them for battle. And those are mentioned there, strong, powerful, and fearless in battle. Finally, he mentions the hawk and the eagle, birds of prey, which are designed to soar, and they're given keen eyesight as birds of prey. And of course, it's interesting to me because God is telling us things that I don't think too many people fully understood then. Maybe we have a better understanding today. But all that does is prove that God knew way before we discovered the truth about the animal kingdom. That's all which is, in my opinion, uh, encouraging. Verse 26, does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread his wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build his nest on high? He dwells on a cliff and stays there at night. A rocky crag is his stronghold, and from there he seeks out his food. His eyes detected from afar. His young ones feast on blood. And where the slain are, 
there is he. So speaking of birds of prey, and specifically hawks and eagles, all of this to challenge Job to answer. And so the Lord challenges Job to answer, and and Job does have something to say. It isn't much, but let's read it in verse 1 of chapter 40. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. And then we read this in verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. You see, Job had attempted to contend with God in his extreme suffering, taking issue with his circumstances. We understand why. But now Job found silence in God's presence to be the only only appropriate response. All of this should bring us to a place of worship. That's the idea. Whether we're talking about the earth or the heavens or the animal kingdom, it's important to understand that what God is essentially doing is making it abundantly clear that you and I, that we really cannot bring our case before God's presence. We have no case. We have no standing. Apart from Christ, we don't even belong there. And Job is finding out that when you begin to ask many questions and maybe hold things against God or or question why he's doing what he's doing, eventually you will come to a place of silence before your creator. So, wouldn't it be best in these circumstances to start where Job ended? Wouldn't it be the best thing to worship God at all times, like the book of Psalms tells us? Praise the Lord, right? Praise the Lord at all times. We praise the Lord. I know it's difficult when we go through difficult circumstances or our world is going crazy. It's hard sometimes to understand why. But as people of faith, Job becomes an excellent example. If you say these things about God that are true and in silence worship him, not that you can't cry out to God and ask for help, but rather than asking God so many questions or trying to understand why you're going through the things you're going through, it would probably be best to remember what Jesus did when he prayed in the garden, when he said, nevertheless, your will be done. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to accept those things we can't change and accept our circumstances, no matter how difficult they may be, whether they include suffering or death or grief. Oh, Lord God, it's very difficult in our human nature to do that. But as people of faith, may we trust you in all things. Trusting you, even with this crazy world, our nation and the culture that we're living in right now, basically surviving in right now, Lord God, may we trust you each and every day. May we be so filled with praise for you that that translates into peace, a peace that passes all understanding, a joy that's unspeakable in your presence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.